this morning. I'm going to go ahead and push the door shut here. You're glad I'm here too? Thank you. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 14. We kind of uh, skimmed through or read through uh, most of this last week. And we're going to dive in a little bit deeper today. A lot of what I'm going to be giving to you, I'm going to be reading from my notes um, just simply because there was a lot of information directly out of the commentaries that I was using that just was very well written. And so uh, um, I went ahead and wrote it all down so that I can just give it to you that way. And uh, so... We're going to go ahead and we'll open up in prayer and we'll get started. Lord Jesus, I thank you for today again, and I just thank you for your blessings. Um, Lord, I thank you for the spiritual gifts that you do give us to use. Um, Lord, to lift each other up, to encourage each other. Um, Lord, to teach one another and, uh, and to use for the common good or the benefit of the church as a body. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to realize those things and to step into um, those things on a weekly basis as we come together. And Lord, so that people, when they come in from the outside, can see those things that are inter the interaction that's taking place, um, the loving on one another that you command us to do that's taking place. And Lord, they will see and, and know and understand the love of Christ. And so Lord, I just thank you for that. I thank you for the instruction that you give us in your word today. And help us to, uh, Lord, to continue to faithfully exercise it. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 14, um, the title of um, today's lesson is Our Tongues for Today. Um, and uh, we're just going to jump right in. In verse 1, he, he says, Follow the way of love and eagerly de desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Um, and I'm just going to start going verse by verse. I know I'm not going to get through all of what I had for today, so we're just going to get as far as we can through it, and, uh, and we'll continue it next week. Uh, but I had mentioned last week that love is the means by which the gifts are made effective. Um, and if we, if we think about that, we, we consider uh, if a spiritual gift is given to a person and it's not expressed in a loving way, uh, it, it becomes ineffective because it's, it's really kind of just kind of rejected uh, from the person that is, that is receiving that. And so love is what makes the spiritual gift beneficial for the common good as well. So however splendid uh, and profitable that the gifts were, there was a greater way of life. And Paul is urging the readers to make this way of love the definitive characteristic of their own course of life. So this, in turn, would lead them to desire the greater gifts, uh, and of course, among which was prophecy. So initially, rather than focusing on the spiritual gift, he's giving the instruction to learn how to love one another um, and to learn how to express yourself in, in loving ways so that, um, so that the spiritual gifts are effective immediately when they're administered. And so... Um, if we look back at Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, we see where Jesus gives an answer to a question to a, um, to a lawyer 
or to a teacher of the law, Matthew, 20, Matthew 22, and we'll start in verse 34. And keeping in mind, this is the Tuesday before the crucifixion. Okay, that this question is asked. So this is during the Holy Week before the crucifixion of Christ, before the last Passover. So Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, he says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Um, now, there's an important statement that he is referring to. He says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So up until this point in time, these are the greatest commandments. And so if we look at John 13, John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38, keeping in mind, this is two days later. Jesus is with his disciples. John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. says, when he was gone, Jesus said, okay, this is right after Judas uh, leaves to go and betray Jesus. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. So by saying a little longer, he's saying less than 24 hours. And they're not understanding this at this point. Um, he says, you will look for me. Look for me uh, and just as I told the Jews, I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. And of course, also referring to his ascension later as well. He says here, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And of course, Peter asks him, Lord, where are you going? He's, he's not listening to the command. He's listening to, he's leaving? Whoa, wait, wait a minute. What are we going to do? You know, so Peter is already questioning. And Jesus replies, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow later. And Jesus is referring to his execution, to the crucifixion. Uh, and Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And then Jesus answers, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And I'm not going to get too deep into it, but uh, um, we've been learning in men's Bible study about the rooster, the crow of the rooster, um, that the, the trumpet call of the changing of the guard, in the scripture, it even says the rooster will crow twice. Um, the trumpet of the changing of the guard, I believe, happened at like 3 a.m. And they called it the call of the rooster. And so during the Passover week, the city was so full of people and there was so much commotion that, they, that they changed, the changing of the guard um, was alerted 
by a trumpet call. And so the trumpet call would point one direction and and they would set out a blast. And that's one. And they would turn the other way and they would send out another blast. And so um, what we've learned is that the rooster isn't actually a rooster. That was just the name that they called the changing of the guard. And it happens at 3 a.m. And they blew the horn twice during the last Passover week because... uh, so it, and that's what's believed to be the rooster crowing um, that was heard because it was heard throughout the whole city. And then at that moment, that's when Jesus turns and he looks at Peter uh, as that happens. But anyway, I'm getting a little off subject here. But Jesus is talking about this new command. And if we just turn a page or two to chapter 15, um, <clears throat> we'll read verses 9 through 17. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, that you love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command, and I no longer call you servants because um, a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So two days after he gives this Pharisee the greatest commandment, he's he's prepping his disciples for the church age and the teaching that's to come by saying, now love for the body of believers and love for one another is the greatest demonstration of love that you can have that's going to show people Christ's love. And so it doesn't negate love your neighbor as yourself, and it certainly doesn't negate love the Lord your God with all your heart. But love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Now the second uh, command that is being given during the church age is to love one another and love your neighbor as yourself. And so um, the Apostle Paul is affirming this when he demonstrates or he's teaching following the way of love and eagerly desiring the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. He's, he's putting that, that, that greater love within the body of believers. And so um, in verses 2 through 5 in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So as I was studying this portion of it, um, in the first century, there were a number of pagan religions uh, 
that were acquainted with these ten prophetesses. These these were women who spoke in unique tongues um, that people were just astonished and they they marveled at because of these uh, different foreign unique languages that people, these women would speak in. And so there are some that believe that the Corinthian people may have thought that the gift of tongues... um, was comparable to the pagan gift that was that these other prophetesses were exercising and paul uses the greek word glossa for tongues um he uses it 21 times in first corinthians between chapters 12 and 14 but then he only uses it three other times outside of those in the new testament uh, and each of those three other times the word glossa is used as a quotation from the old Tes- testament or at least a, uh, an alluding to a quotation from the Old Testament. And so you, we won't turn there, but I'll give you the references. In, in Romans 3.13, he makes a reference to Psalm chapter 5, verse 9, and, and uses the word tongues in there. And then also in Romans 14.11, and in Philippians 2.11, uh, he makes a reference to Isaiah 45.23, where it's a reference of... Uh, there is a, a downplaying of the gift of tongues where, where there's a reference made to people speaking in different languages and different tongues and hearing the gospel message in their own language and still not committing and understanding what the gospel message is about or at least they're not stepping into uh, a submission to it. And so the same can be said <coughs> of the use of the word glossa elsewhere in the New Testament um, where it's used literally referring to the organ, the tongue, uh, in a couple of places. And then there's other places where it's, where it's used figuratively, speaking of other languages. Uh, and those references, if you'd like to look at them, uh, Mark 7.33, uh, James chapter 3, verse 5, and then John uses it in Revelation 16.10. Those, those are references to the physical organ of the tongue, and then there's several places in Revelation. Uh, if you read through Revelation, there's several places where it is referred to as another language. Um, you guys want those references? I can give you those. Uh, Revelation 5, 9. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Uh, chapter 10, verse 11. And chapter 11, verse 9. Again, in chapter 13, verse 7. Chapter 14, verse 6. And then the last one is chapter 17, verse 15. Um, and so with these, these prophetesses during the first century, um, it was referred to as, as an ecstatic speech. Um, in meaning an ecstatic speech uh, it's not like um, an excitement. It's like a, uh, uh, like, a, like a supernatural self-transcendence of, you know, like an out-of-body almost type of experience. It's a, it's a very mystical uh, experience. So it's nothing like what Paul is describing. And so there's some people that believe that the Corinthian church were confusing that. And why that's significant today is I have a number of conversations with people from different denominations that will ask, 
you know, well, are you saved? Well, yes, I'm, I'm saved. You know, I'm convinced that, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. Oh, then you've been baptized in the Spirit as well. And I said, I, you know, I like to ask the question, explain what do you mean by that? And they'll go directly to the book of Acts and they say, well, they were saved and then they were baptized with the Holy Spirit and they received the gift of tongues and this and this and this. And this is where I like to bring them to 1 Corinthians 14 and say, well, Paul instructed um, that that was for the apostles and that was only for a specific time. And as we read through this, you'll be able to see that. And, uh, and the, you know, typically it leads to the question, well, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? And I, of course, go to Ephesians 1. It says that when you're saved, you were marked with a seal and a guarantee and the promised Holy Spirit. You get the promised Holy Spirit when you say, I surrender my life to Christ. I'm going to follow him. Boom. The Holy Spirit comes. You receive your gift. And as Paul describes here, he says, I wish all of you could, uh, could speak in tongues, but you're not going to. You're not all going to have that gift. <clears throat> and the explanation that he gives is the same when he says, I wish you could all have the gift of celibacy. And so people who are adamant about, um, you know, saying that you, you receive the Holy Spirit when you receive the gift of tongues, I like to look at them and I say, well, are you guys married? Well, yeah. Do you have intimacy with your spouses? Yeah. Paul says, I wish all of you could be like me and, and be celibate. But that's not a foundational truth to Christianity. It's not a foundational, and that's in, in chapter 7 when we studied that before. So the context of these verses is the assembled congregation in the Corinthian uh, where, where utterance in a tongue was given without benefit of interpretation. So when he's referring to uh, in, these, in these passages, he's not downplaying the gift of tongues in any way. He's telling them, if you have the gift of tongues, um, we'll read in a few minutes, uh, let, let's just go ahead and read on. He says in verse 6 and following, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will it be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you, unless you speak in intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp, grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build the church up. So in the assembled con congregation, um, later on he's going to say that if you speak in a tongue, uh, you should pray that there's an interpreter. And if there is no interpreter, you should be quiet. And people don't like to hear that because they want, they want by nature, we want to see supernatural things happen. Um, we want to see um, extraordinary things happen. And so Paul even gives the, the point a little bit later as well. He gives the point that even though I speak in tongues more than any of you, and I wish that all of you could and would speak in tongues, I came to you and I didn't use that gift specifically because if I did, you would look at me and go, wow, 
That guy don't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And so he gives the explanation that even when he came to Corinth on the first occasion, he came with knowledge. He came with understanding, and he came with prophecy and revelation from God in a clear language that they could understand so that they knew exactly what he was talking about, and, then they, and it caught their interest. Uh, and they were, they were um, attentive to it. So apparently what was going on, there was no native speaker of the tongue that was present in this assembly, and so no one was given any supernatural enablement to interpret it. And the utterances, therefore, were mysteries. They were truths requiring a supernatural disclosure, which God had not provided them in this instance. So one with the gift of prophecy, on the other hand, spoke in a tongue of his listeners, and he edified them by proclaiming God's word in such a way that it gave them strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Um, so then, continuing in, back in verse 5, uh, the person with the gift of tongues who spoke without the benefit of interpretation could edify himself only, but not others in the church. So if we look at 5 and 6, um, or no, I'm sorry, verse 4, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So if we jump over to verse 15, so what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. And jump down to verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop, stop thinking like children in regard to evil. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it's written with, the t with other tongues, and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then, they will not learn, or they will not listen to me. Thank you, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecies, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So he's talking about within the assembly of the church, tongues really doesn't have any significance or any place um, as far as teaching goes unless there is a divine revelation from God. And he tells us earlier in this passage that if a person has the gift of tongues and they believe that they have a message for the body that day, they should pray that there is an interpreter there and that is confirmation that it is from God. So in verse 5, Paul has no intention of depreciating the gift, but he's simply interested in appreciating the gift of prophecy. And so there's nothing wrong with the gift of tongues per se. In fact, Paul thought it would be good that if everyone had the gift, but of course he said the same thing about, like I said earlier, celibacy in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. But in neither instance did he expect universal compliance with his statement. So I want to ask the question, um, over the last several weeks, um, how many of you enjoyed studying the scripture and bringing a short lesson uh, during church builders in the afternoon? Did. You did? did? Cool. Did every... <laughs> Yeah, so, 
Yeah, and, and so th- th- that kind of thing is where Paul is saying, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Um, how many of us want to do that on a regular basis? I, <laughs> yeah. You know, initially, initially, it's fearful. It's it's kind of it's nervousness because it gets you out of your element. But Paul is saying that when you love other people enough that you want them to know the truth. You don't want them to hear what you're saying. You want to go into the Bible and say, okay, Lord, give me something to give to them that's going to help them. I think the, the word that gets confusing to me is prophecy. It mean yeah, it doesn't. Right. Right. It means teaching and, and giving the word, the written word of God already. And so with that question, I would ask, how many of you learned more during that study and teaching than you would normally learn under the teaching of another person. <laughs> would you say you learned as much or more doing the study of your on your own? I would say so too. I mean, and that's the case for me when when I study a lesson, and I and I love to listen to the messages, and I love to listen to other preachers and things like that because they, they say things and they cause me to think about things. Uh, you know, like Wayne on Thursday nights. Um, you know, he made a statement Thursday night about the crown of thorns that Jesus wore on his head. And he, he made the statement that that was a reference to the thorns and thistles that came with the curse. That Jesus took not only my sins, but he took the curse that was upon the entire earth. And I'm like, whoa, that just amplifies the load that Jesus took to the cross on top of my sin you know and you, and when you think about how the earth groans in birth pains waiting for the return of Jesus Christ to purify the earth again um, it's just like wow you know there's so much more excuse me I think there was a mention about it Wednesday night and then and then Wayne Wayne you know he, he elaborated on it on Thursday because we've been studying the book of John on Thursday night and uh, anyway when you when you get into that study and Paul's is he's urging people here to love other people so much that you want them to know the truth and that means for me to get in and study the truth more so that I have something to give um, and even when you see the first deacons instituted in Acts um, you know when when Peter uh, is told to get you know seven men full of the Holy Spirit who are able to teach, who know the truth, to serve people. The goal is not serving people. The the gift is serving people in a way that is so loving that they will be attentive when you start sharing the truth about Jesus Christ. And so these are people who are already studying the Scripture. They're already passionate about what they're doing. And I'm convinced that as as we kind of urge each other, fan into flame, as Paul tells Timothy, the gift that's in you, um, and he tells him to discharge all of the duties of the, of, the, of, of the church. And he urges him to continue to be an evangelist. He's, he's really saying, get everybody studying and teaching one another. So that when new people come in or younger Christians come in, uh, anybody that they connect with within the body, they're able to take them to the next step. They're able to urge them into 
uh, a closer walk with Christ. And so um, in this passage, he's really pushing the fact um, not that tongues are unimportant, but to increase the importance of teaching and of knowledge and of understanding and, and uh, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if we look at verses 7 through 9 a little closer, um, <clears throat> he says, Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or a harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for the battle? So it is with you, unless you speak in intelligible words with your tongue, excuse me, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll be just speaking into the air. And so the, the, the only uh, picture of this that comes to mind as I read this is um, if Isabella came in today and, and we said, you know what, Isabella is going to play the piano and she's going to lead in worship today. For a little while, it would be kind of cute, you know, her going up to and, and just playing the piano and pushing the keys down. But how many people would actually be able to listen and hear that and start singing a song and giving praise to Jesus Christ? And he's describing this as saying, that's the way it is with people who are speaking in a tongue without an interpreter. You can't recognize the tune, so nobody's going to sing together, nobody's going to praise the Lord together, nobody's going to recognize the song. That's how it is with speaking in tongues when there's no interpreter. And then he goes on to say, um, in verse 11, or excuse me, in verse 10, uh, undoubtedly there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So, is it, so it is with you, since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So there was a time when, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before, I went on a mission trip, uh, Tracy and I went on a mission trip to Reynosa, Mexico, and we walked into McDonald's and I couldn't even communicate what I wanted to eat, you know, other than pointing at the picture on the screen, on the sign. Uh, and, you know, there was just, it was very, very difficult to understand what was wanted between the two people. And you guys, you guys know and understand that you've been in that situation before. Um, but he's describing it as the same thing. So human communication operates on the same principles as an instrumental communication. Human sounds, apart from a shared understanding of their meanings, were worthless. That's why Paul did not discourage their interest in the proper use of the spiritual gifts, but he did encourage them to pursue the gifts that benefits the entire church. <clears throat> so in verse 13... For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. So interpreted tongues, much like prophecy, could, could benefit the entire assembly. Therefore, the gift of interpretation should be requested of God. And if no one was present who was able to interpret, the, 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 per, uh, the speaker was to keep silent. And we know that because he tells us in verse 28, um, if there is no interpreter... The speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. 
And, and even that's still difficult for me to understand because also in the passage, he's, you know, in verses uh, 13 or 14 and 15, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? Well, I pray with my spirit, but I also will pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. So he's making the declaration that his intention is always to pray and to sing with both his spirit and his understanding. Um, so in other words, there has to be some sort of clarity so that he knows and understands what he's saying. His spirit knows and understands what he is saying, uh, the praise that he is giving, um, and also uh, the people that are around him can agree uh, he mentions in the next couple of verses here, otherwise when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. And so that word amen, what does that word mean? I'm glad you answered that way. Because if... So shall it be, or, or, or let it be so. Um, so when we, say, when we end a prayer, we say, in Jesus' name, let it be so. So according to Jesus' will, if it's according to Jesus' will, let it be so. Uh, that's how we often end our prayers. But there's a song out there where <coughs> that's on Christian radio that's played pretty regularly that in the middle of the song, you hear the singer stop and say, Amen, we agree. And there have been, they, they actually have commercials on the radio station where they say, amen means we agree. And the first time I heard that, I went, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and what they're saying is if, if you and I agree on the same thing, then God automatically agrees with us. Um, and, and that's not true. And so there's, there's a misinterpretation. And what, what Paul is saying is, if I don't praise God in a way that complies with the Word of God, and I don't give the Word of God correctly, how can anybody say amen? Or if they don't understand what is being said, how can they say, yes, in Jesus' name, let it be so? If they have no understanding of what's being said, if they have no understanding of what's being praised. And so, uh, to your thanksgiving, uh, since they do not know what you're saying, he says, you are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. So in other words, it needs to be a clear statement about Jesus Christ, about, uh, about the word of God, so that people can join in and they can agree with you on the statements that are truthfully made about Christ. So if we look at verses 18 and 19, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues. Um, we've read this already before, but he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm going... If I can give you five words, Paul's saying, if I can give you five words that will instruct you, that is more than 10,000 words in a tongue. Um, how many of you would be satisfied if I gave you five words today and said, okay, we're done? 
you probably, you probably say, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> Five words, all right. Um, Paul is saying that the simple truth, a very simple truthful statement is more valuable than speaking in tongues if, if there's no interpreter. Um, and, and, of course, we can easily understand that as well. Um, some believe that interpretation is unnecessary when the gift is used as a private prayer language. I've heard people say, uh, I'm speaking, I pray to God in tongues, and I speak in my heavenly language um, when I pray. And Paul's saying, there's nothing wrong with that when you're doing it on, in your own private prayer time. But he's also saying, how does it benefit you? Um, it can be a benefit to you in the sense of there's just a confirmation that God has given you that gift, but beyond that, there really isn't much benefit to it, If again, if there still is no interpretation. And so oftentimes when you see or you hear people that get into that, they'll, you know, they'll be praying, and, and I've been around people, they've been praying, and they just get so welled up with emotion that they don't know what else to pray, and they'll be tearing, and, and, and pretty soon they start babbling and things like that. I don't ever question the motive behind that, but what I do know and understand is that when that does happen, it doesn't benefit the people who are listening. Um, it can be. It can be very distracting. Um, right, right. No, he's talking languages. He's talking where he, uh, right, when he would enter into a city on a missionary journey and they did not speak his native language, the gift of tongues, he would be, be able to clearly articulate in their language so that they could understand the message of the gospel. And so in Corinth, their native language was Greek. So when Paul arrived, he spoke in Greek to them so that they were able... I believe he was given a, a natural spiritual gift to be able... Right. He, he did study, and I'm sure he was familiar with multiple languages. He was probably very bilingual anyway. Um, but if he encountered someone on the path, on the road somewhere, uh, and was going to share the gospel with them, and he didn't know the language that they spoke, I'm convinced that, that he had the spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit gave him the gift, and he would speak in his own language, but the person hearing would hear in their own language. So that's how it was described at Pentecost when Peter was preaching. There were multiple um, vocabularies. There were multiple languages of people that were there. Peter spoke in one language, in his natural uh, native language, and everybody heard the gospel message in their own language. Well, that's different than people that have a gift. Yes. Right. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm convinced that that is more of a display of supernatural, you know, they want to have a, a supernatural display of tongues. Um, they want to see tongues of fire licking up, you know, coming, flowing through like, like when Peter was at the centurion's house. Um, you know, it says that the Holy Spirit came through and it was like tongues of fire. They want to see that supernatural thing happening more than they want to give the, just the simple truth about Jesus Christ. With, with the people you're talking about? No, I don't. I think it's demonic. Yeah, Paul, Paul describes it as if... 
that's exactly what I was referring to earlier when I said that, that I would have conversations with people saying I got saved, and then they would say, well, did you get baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, absolutely, because Ephesians 1 says I received the Holy Spirit when I get saved. Well, did you receive your spiritual gift? Well, yeah, everybody receives a spiritual gift when they get saved, and not everybody speaks in tongues. It is, and, and what makes it confusing is when people go into the Gospels and they go into the book of Acts looking for church doctrine. Uh, Paul clearly gives that the things that they did in Acts are descriptive, and there are some prescript, prescriptive things in there, but how you know the ones that are prescriptives is they're given again in his letters. Um, he'll, he'll say, when I was with you, we did this, this, and this. Those things you continue to do. When I was with you, we spoke in tongues, but do not speak in tongues because it's going to bring confusion, confusion in the church. And that's what he's saying here, that in Acts there are descriptions of things that happened for the furtherance of the gospel, but this is what you are to focus on. You're to elevate prophecy. You're to elevate knowledge. You're to elevate uh, praise and worship in intelligible languages so that everyone is encouraged and strengthened and lifted up by them. So, um, for that very reason, Paul says that he didn't use his gift of tongues when he was in the assembled church in Corinth, but he did use the gift of prophecy, and that was in accord with God's purpose. And so, when we go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he says, I always, this is chapter 1, verses 4, and the following verses, he says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, in him you have all been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Now Paul's describing here, I didn't come to you and start speaking in tongues right away. He's saying, I came to you and I gave you the truth in your own language. I helped you understand because you were seekers of knowledge and you were seekers of understanding and that's what you needed to hear. You needed to hear the truth in your own language and understand what it was. Um, verse 7, he says, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed and he will also keep you firm until the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so then he goes on, and as we remember, um, he's saying, don't, don't put in place, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, or I follow Paul. Follow Jesus Christ. And then he continues to go on and gives teachings about the questions, the different questions they have about food sacrifice to idols, questions about marriage, questions about all of these things, and he's explaining um, that some of these things, you're elevating them beyond what they were ever intended to be. Um, and so he's, he's pointing the focus on the teaching about Jesus Christ and love for each other over everything else. Um, and so where do tongues fit into God's purpose then? Um, and we know that where they fit in in verses 22 through 25. Um, and we'll just read these and then we'll pick this up next week right here. It says, Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. 
Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquires, inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? For if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in, while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and they're brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among us. And so if, if someone comes in and everybody in here were speaking in tongues and there were no interpreters, what would it look like? Okay, <laughs> you craziness. The thing that comes to my mind it would, confusion, it would look like a cult. It really would. I mean. Okay. Right. The, 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 the purpose for tongues were, were for evangelistic purposes. And so when, if I were going through my day and I encountered someone uh, in the community or out somewhere and they did not understand the language that I spoke, I could walk up to them and say, hey, Jesus loves you, and they would hear it in their own language. Wow. Wow. Right. Our right. Babbling tongues, there is, there is no place for at all, and the only, except for the only allowance that he gives for that is when you're praying and you, if you begin babbling, yeah, okay, the Holy Spirit is going to interpret and intercede for you, but you don't even know what you're saying. That's why he says... I will pray and I will worship with my understanding and my spirit. So in other words, he says, I'm going to learn to use my words when I pray and when I worship. So there's really not a, a place for it, um, but he says it's, it's, a mature, it's a maturing that takes place. Um, so these people that were, they were seeking after, okay, I want to I practice tongue. There, there's denominations that will actually take you into a class and teach you how to repetitively babble so that it sounds like it's spiritual. And I'm going, where's that? Yeah, yeah. And, and so they will teach you that that is a gift of the Spirit. Okay, we're going to teach you how to receive this gift, and we're going to teach you how to just let your Spirit go and let the Spirit of God wash over you and take control. And... He's going to tell us later, yeah, he's going to tell us later uh, in 1 Corinthians that the Spirit of God that's inside of you is subject to the prophet, is subject to the person that's speaking. So in other words, the Spirit of God doesn't work that way. The Spirit of God doesn't come in, into your life and go, okay, I'm in control now, and I'm going to make you do what I want you to do. No, the Spirit of God comes inside of you and says, you're saved. Let's teach you how to live a godly life. I'm, gonna, I'm here to help you understand what the Scripture says about godly living. And that's what the Spirit of God does. 
And so there are songs out there. There's a lot of Christian songs that are written that are written on the basis of the Holy Spirit comes into the church and floats around and creates an atmosphere of, wow, of just this awesome power and, and all this kind of stuff. And the Bible teaches against that. Paul says that that is a demonic spirit if that's the way that you're interpreting how the Holy Spirit works. It's supposed to be there. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, do I, do I agree that sometimes the Holy Spirit has freedom to work and sometimes doesn't because of my attitude or my desire? Absolutely. I can allow the Spirit to work as much as I want to in my life, and I can restrict the Holy Spirit from working as much as I want to in my life. And Paul says when you restrict the Holy Spirit, you break fellowship. When you, when you cut off um, that, that connection, or when you restrict that connection, you break fellowship with God. And it's not that you lose your salvation. It's that when you're saying, Lord, I'm not listening to you right now. I don't want to do what you command. The Holy Spirit says, okay, well, you're on your own. We can't help you unless you're walking. Uh, and Tracy, she's got a shirt, Galatians 5, what was it? Galatians 5, 22. If you, if you walk with the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay? I want to walk with the Spirit. The flesh is constantly tugging at you, wanting your attention, wanting your affection. And you have the choice, no, I'm going to continue to walk in the Spirit. Or you have the choice to go, okay, hold on a second, Spirit. I want to just check this out for a minute. You know, and when we do that, Jesus says, I'm sorry, you're out of my protection now. You're out of uh, um, me helping you with your thoughts and the desires of your heart. So I'm sorry we ran a little over. Thank you for your attention this morning. If you have questions, more questions, please feel free to to come up and we'll discuss those more as the day goes on today. God bless you guys.